everyone, and welcome to the Stroke Special Interest Group podcast. I'm your host and fellow physical therapist, Jackie Lochelle. Today, we will be discussing the intervention of blood flow restriction training. I know when I think of blood flow restriction training and PT, I think of interventions for people that are post-op and high-level athletes. However, these populations are not the only ones benefiting from blood flow restriction training. Today, we will discuss this with Dr. Mark Minyago and Dr. Evan Cohen about how this intervention is used for patients with neurologic deficits. Mark Minyago is an assistant professor at University of Colorado Physical Therapy Program. He is a neurologic clinical specialist and has 15 plus years of experience working with people with neurologic conditions with an emphasis on working with people who have MS. In his current position, he teaches and conducts research. He is currently leading a study looking at the feasibility of low load resistance training with people with MS who have advanced disability and blood flow restriction training. Evan T. Cohen is currently an associate professor from the Doctor of Physical Therapy Program at Arcadia University in Pennsylvania. He's been a licensed physical therapist since 1992 and an ABPTS neurologic certified specialist since 2002. His clinical and research focus has been on the rehabilitation of persons with multiple sclerosis. He recently published a case report in the Physical Therapy Journal about the use of blood flow restriction training and low intensity resistance training on a person with MS and is collaborating with Dr. Minyago on his study of blood flow restriction and low low resistance training in persons with advanced MS related disability. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us, Dr. Minyago and Dr. Cohen. Really appreciate it. Can you guys first explain what blood flow restriction training really is and the physiology behind it? So blood flow restriction training is really the practice of using some sort of cuff or tourniquet to occlude blood flow. Typically that means fully occluding venous blood flow and then partially occluding arterial blood flow. And it's kind of the the basic idea behind blood flow restriction, at least when used with resistance training, is that you can use lower loads, much lower intensities of resistance training with the blood flow restriction to mimic strength and hypertrophy gains that you would get with higher load training without blood flow restriction. And so really how blood flow restriction does that, I'm definitely not a physiologist, but I kind of do my best here to sort of give a broad overview of this is that blood flow restriction kind of relies on that hypoxic environment and and that reduced blood flow to create metabolic stress in the muscle and forcing the muscle into anaerobic metabolism. And so that produces lactate kind of facilitates growth hormone release and um, insulin-like growth factor, all the types of things that would happen with higher load training. It's just able to do that with lower loads. It seems very efficient. Yeah, it's efficient. And I think like you mentioned in the introduction, typically we might think of this for people recovering post-op when they can't load a muscle fully, but still want to increase or maintain their muscle strength. So they can do that with lower loads without stressing the connective tissue in the muscle. So there's a a similar use of the tool called remote ischemic preconditioning. When we use blood flow restriction, generally it's applied, I'm going to say locally, if we're, if we're exercising the leg, the tourniquet or the cuff is placed typically proximal to the, to the muscle group that we want to work. But there's a 
is a body of literature that looks at remote ischemic preconditioning where that same stimulus is provided elsewhere away from the body. And as, as Mark mentioned, the physiology isn't, isn't perfectly clear yet. We don't really understand exactly what's happening yet, but there's this interesting systemic response that even if it's applied remotely, we still might see some of the same effects. And even more locally, for example, again, if, if we're asking a patient to do lower extremity exercises and putting a cuff on the thigh, there, the studies seem to still show that even the strength gains, even proximal to the blood flow restriction are there also. So there's something that is beyond just the local element that we haven't exactly put our finger on yet. So there seems to be widespread effect, not just the, the muscle that you are targeting. Yeah, so so there there are systemic effects that are happening. Like Evan said, I, I don't know that we fully understand all of those. But the difference, I think, is right, which I didn't mention when I was explaining it, is blood flow restriction is applied during the exercise to typically the exercising limb, whereas something like remote ischemic preconditioning, which which also has been studied in people with neurologic conditions, is hypoxia that's delivered prior to exercise, then you exercise without the hypoxic stress. What does BFR do to improve outcomes? And is there any research right now in the neural population about specific areas? So like strengthening, spasticity, balance? A BFR training is often coupled with a low intensity resistance training as, as, as Mark described. And there are, there are several articles, although I would not call it a a robust body of evidence yet. There are several case reports that have been published, two on people with Parkinson's disease, one on person with spinal, a person with spinal cord injury, one on a person with cerebral palsy. I, I published a, a case report last year in the, the PT journal on about a person with MS. And there are a few small experimental studies, one of pretty sound quality on people with MS and one of less sound quality also on people with MS. So the, the evidence is just starting to come out about its, its usefulness. And if we generalize a little bit from the literature that exists, we can use blood flow restriction training coupled with resistance training for strengthening, or it can be coupled with things like cycle ergometry or treadmill training that in theory are gonna to lead to similar gains in, in aerobics. So, and the, the results seem to be pretty specific. So if a person is using blood flow restriction coupled with strengthening exercises, generally what's being seen are gains in strength and then commensurate gains in, in other areas relative to it. So it's a lower extremity strengthening program. Maybe we're gonna see changes in, in balance or, or walking. If it's a, a, an aerobic program, then again, we're gonna see changes in aerobic capacity and endurance. And again, some, uh, some commensurate improvements in, in, related, in related functions there too. How does blood flow restriction fit into the principles of neuroplasticity? Before we move on to that, one of the sub-questions in the previous one is, are there specific areas it works best for? A part of what, what piqued my interest about it, and I, I think, I don't want to speak for Mark, but I think it's part of what piqued his interest too, is that for our patients with MS, they tend to have a reduced ability to tolerate exercise because of 
either the symptom of fatigue or because they have motor fatigability or some combination of those things. And I think it, when as neuro-PTs, when we think about people with MS, we often think about fatigue. It's a very highly prevalent symptom, but fatigue is very prevalent in nearly every other central nervous system pathology with which we work. It's very common in people with Parkinson's disease and spinal cord injury and, and stroke and brain injury and, and others. So the idea of fatigue as a limiting factor for exercise is something that we've got to consider. We, we recognize that as PTs, we tend to underdose our patients. And one of the, the perks of using blood flow restriction is that our patients can be working at a lower intensity level and still reap the benefit as if they were working at a higher intensity level. So for our patients with either symptomatic fatigue that limits their, their energy for work or the, the sign of fatigability where they lose the capacity to operate at a high level, using blood flow restriction coupled with that low intensity exercise could make the therapy dosing more useful. You know, the question, I think your original question was, how does it improve outcomes? And while the research is, is not definitive in neurologic populations, even for healthy population or orthopedic pop, musculoskeletal populations, blood flow restriction is used when traditional strengthening is, is not feasible or possible. The idea is that low load training with BFR for resistance training, it's not necessarily better. It's just a different way that you can then use strengthening. So to Evan's point exactly, that's where I see so much potential in neurologic populations. So in addition to fatigue, you know, one thing we're looking at now is, is studying this in people with MS who have much more advanced disability. So these are people who might not be able to really like get onto a leg press machine that easily, might have to exercise from their wheelchair. Maybe they're so weak in some muscles that even, you know, that low weight on a resistance training machine is not low enough for them. And so we have to go to some other, you know, alternative mode. And you can work at those very low doses and, you know, add this and hopefully see those benefits of resistance training at higher intensities. Since you guys put it like that, it makes a lot of sense that people with neurologic deficits could benefit from this. Since it seems like you can get a lot of bank from your buck without putting in a lot of the, the higher level of strengthening that, that some people can't tolerate in this population. Correct. I mean, I think that's what my hope would be for, for a clinical application, right? And so it's not for everyone, the people that can tolerate higher loads and, and do those higher loads, at least with like MS, I would still do that, right? I wouldn't just add BFR, you know, because it's, it's kind of the latest and greatest thing. But yeah, for, I think for a lot of people, it can have a big impact in that way. Exactly. So would you say that, would you feel like it's better for somebody that can't tolerate that high level? Would using BFR for somebody who can tolerate higher levels, could that possibly make them get to an even higher level of strength gain? Or you're not really sure? So, you know, the, I think the evidence in like musculoskeletal populations, uh, post-op uh, populations really shows that you get the same effects, right? So you, you, this is generalizing a bit, but that it's as good, you know, doing low load resistance training with BFR is as good as high load training mm -hmm. for a lot of musculoskeletal populations using BFR is 
I think typically seen as like, this is a temporary kind of means to get them back to their regular high load resistance training. And so, yeah, for people, I think that already with neurologic conditions that already tolerate this, I don't know that adding BFR would necessarily do much more. Yeah, I think uh, from a, the perspective of variety, I think maybe there's something there in that by continuing to provide new exercise stimuli, it might have a different effect. So uh, and this, this is total hearsay. I, I, I'm not familiar with any evidence that talks about this, but I'm not, I'm not deeply immersed in the, in the athlete literature that looks at BFR. I would hypothesize that a, a patient who hits sort of a plateau with traditional exercise may benefit from this different kind of, of stimulus where they're doing even, it's a similar exercise, but under some different conditions. And that may, may take someone who's in a plateau position and maybe help start accelerating things forward again. So thinking about the, the literature that talks about, you know, a variety of exercise, something like that, there may be something like that there also that, that might be useful. I do, I do really want to support what Mark said about this being a parallel pathway. It's an alternate mode to achieve the same goal. You know, if, if you need to work on strengthening and you have a patient who is not tolerating the prescription that you would ordinarily provide, this may be a way to make it happen. Or for that person who, and I would, I would, I would say the same for, for the aerobic exercise. If that person can't mm-hmm. exercise at the parameters that we think are appropriate, this is a way that can make what they can do more effective. That's great. Yeah. And I, I know fatigue is something that a lot of people in this population are frustrated about. So it's great that there's something to offer now for somebody in this situation. How does BFR fit into the principles of neuroplasticity? I'm not sure that it does. <laughs> my, I mean, my, my real answer is I'm not, I'm not sure that it does directly because the, the key effects of using BFR with either strength training or aerobic training seems to be more localized peripherally. Mm-hmm. So if I think about you know, my conceptual model of rehabilitation, it may position the person to resolve or ameliorate the underlying impairment of body function that is contributing to a lack of activity mobility. So if I have a patient who has, you know, a substantial weakness in the hip and knee extensors, and I thinking about using something like BFR and low intensity training to improve the strength, it's because this patient has trouble performing their set to stand transfers, or uh, that contributes to deviations to their walking. So uh, the way that I envision it is by addressing that impairment, it puts the the patient in the position to be able then to do the kind of training that is going to drive more central plasticity. So then they're going to be able to do more walking training or transferring training as a way to to refine the skill performance. So again, I think that the direct effect is localized. It's, It's muscular. I think the overall effect then for, for PTs is to take that newfound strength or newfound aerobic capacity and then tie it into the grander function. But I think that's, I think first we need to have elaborate proof of concept 
that that it works, particularly with the stroke population, where there's really very limited evidence for its use as a rehabilitation tool. And then to see, is there is there something mechanistic that's happening more centrally with the BFR, or is it just a contributor to better practice or higher intensity work elsewhere that then maybe contributes to that? I agree with Evan in, in that, you know, it's likely that a lot of the effects, at least that we know the most about are, you know, some muscle strength, the hypertrophy. That being said, I, I do think on, on one hand, exercise in general, especially at higher intensities, could be linked to some neuroplastic effects, generally speaking. So if, if BFR can help people get into those more, I guess, stressful kind of high demand types of exercise, then it'd be another, another tool, right. That we have to get them working harder. Right. And so potentially getting a systemic response. The other piece though, is that, and and I have been more recently delving into this literature a little bit. I'm by no means expert on this, but you know, there are quite a bit of systemic effects from BFR. And so some of the main things that have been studied, I think I mentioned at the beginning is we, we know that it increases circulating growth hormone we know that then that translates to insulin-like growth factor. So it also has been shown to, to increase um, VEGF or vascular endothelial growth factor. And so those are factors that are really key for muscle hypertrophy and growth, but those are also um, centrally, at least in MS, those are also important markers for inflammation, myelination, and, and sort of vascularization centrally. So it's definitely not, there's not strong evidence for this, but there, I think, might be potential where this is a tool that can have a little bit more of a systemic effect than a, just a strength training program without it. And potentially there's some chance that, that it would enhance some of those factors that would then lead to like a direct neuroplastic effect. So uh, coming back to the idea of remote ischemic preconditioning, there's, there's this really interesting body of literature that looks at remote ischemic preconditioning to minimize the the severity of stroke. As Mark Mark clarified before, you know BFR is the application of uh, of this blood flow restriction coupled with exercise. Remote ischemic preconditioning is where the restriction is applied without exercise during the application. In some cases exercise is then performed later, but in some cases it's not. In some cases, that's the intervention itself. These, uh, there's actually been this evidence that looks at the use of remote ischemic preconditioning during the acute or even immediate post-acute stroke phase. And what they found is that that, that can actually reduce the size of an ischemic infarct and to result in improvement in clinical findings. So there's there's something something really interesting happening there, right? That putting you know high, high you know pressure resistance on the arm or the leg after stroke actually has an effect on central circulation like that. So just talking uh, just to build on what what Mark was just saying about this systemic effect, there there is evidence for for what's happening just less so from a rehab perspective but clearly that kind of that kind of systemic effect tells us that there's something something going on that's more than meets the eye here are there any contraindications or safety concerns we should take into consideration so the 
the one that always, I guess, the, the contraindication or precaution or concern that always comes up, I think, at least first for people are concerns for like a venous thromboembolism or, you know, people that have a history of DVT. Does it affect clotting disorders or, or and, and certainly that is something where, at least in our studies, we'll always exclude people who, who have any history of clotting disorder or, or problems related to that. The, the evidence, however, like, so there's, there was a nice review of BFR that was done. Primarily it was in, you know, musculoskeletal populations, but it, but it included older adults as well, I think up to age 80. So the rates of those events, that event occurring was like, I mean, less than 0.1% of the time. So it's, it's really quite rare. Obviously, if it happens, it's quite a concern. You know, I think it's probably prudent to continue to be cautious with, with people that have any type of history of DVT or clotting disorder or something like that. And then the other, I think, main thing that people tend to be concerned about is um, like muscle damage. So, so rhabdomyolysis, like in particular, and, and that also was looked at in that review that I was referring to. And, and it's also quite rare, but again, people that might have had a history of that, you might shy away from, from doing BFR. Would you say there's a, a level of soreness or pain that someone experiences that would make it not appropriate? What it says in the literature is that it's, it's often unpleasant at first because of the, the restriction. I know the few instances where I've seen it in use, it's uh, that... It is, it is unpleasant <laughs> to have that squeezing sensation for a lot of people. But what the reports in the literature also say is most people quickly get used to it. And the way that the, I don't want to call it a protocol, but the way that the recommendations have evolved, we typically start with, a, with quite a low occlusion pressure. So it's not quite as restrictive early on and then build up to higher and higher pressure. So it tends to, tends to be pretty tolerable. Mark, do you have something to add to that, particularly with the participants in our study that are more disabled? Were there any concerns there? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I was going to mention that. So we're, you know, doing a feasibility study in people with MS who have advanced, more advanced disability due to MS. So they, um, they're in wheelchairs, they're using walkers or cane to, to get around. We're still in the study, but, but so far, the, the tolerance has been quite good. So people have had discomfort while exercising. You definitely get, you know, again, it pushes you into anaerobic metabolism. So you definitely get a burn if you're, if you're dosing, you know, the load correctly. If anything, it's been really interesting. I may be changing the subject a little bit, but, but it's been impactful doing this kind of work is, is people are actually really excited about that muscle burn versus like, you know, pain or, you know, some, some sort of negative, pain that they're having because they really feel like, oh, I'm like, finally feel like I'm working out because they That's haven't, you know, had that type of highly dosed exercise in, in a long time. We also just published another study. It's a, it was a survey that we conducted in people, uh, in, in any healthcare practitioner that used BFR with people who have neurologic conditions. We didn't have anyone. There was 112 people that responded to that survey. It was mostly physical therapists. And no one had any of those kind of serious adverse events that we just mentioned. And the most common, although they weren't that common, so like four to six people reported these effects, were kind of what you would think we're getting at. Like they didn't tolerate the pressure. So they just, the, the patient didn't want to continue the treatment 
or they had really an, enough pain with it or muscle soreness after it that they didn't want to continue. But but none, none of the other really um, kind of more serious concerns. One other safety concern to mention is that the evidence is not really clear on the safety related to the impact of BFR on the autonomic nervous system. We know that there, there's evidence for autonomic nervous system responses. And the question is for people who have abnormally functioning autonomic nervous systems, is there some, some hazard there? And that's, I think, one of the key things that we need to be thinking about as this, as the research begins to evolve is that we're, we're really still at a feasibility state with patients with neurologic dysfunction to make sure that they are not only responsive, but that it's safe. And just to echo what, what Mark found in, in his survey is that the, the, the reviews that look at safety, it, they, they all boil down to, it, it really seems awfully safe. There, there are very few serious uh, reactions, but it's also, there's sort of this unknown quality to it particularly as it's being applied to more pathological populations. So I, th I think, uh, I know when, you know, when I've utilized it, it, there's been a healthy serving of caution that comes along with it to carefully monitor vital signs and, and carefully monitor the patient's response to the activity, just to make sure that that all is well. Yeah, it seems pretty safe at this point, but you should be doing your homework and monitoring things. Exactly. Yeah. And we're, we're also in, in this study monitoring heart rate and blood pressure before, during, after the sessions. And, and we really haven't, you know, so far at least had any unusual responses. What would someone need to do to get trained on how to do this and would monitor it in anything you mentioned before, is there a protocol in terms of what you should be monitoring or what you shouldn't be monitoring specifically for the neurologic population? There's quite a few companies that make the BFR devices. And I think for the most part, technically they can be, a lot of them can be used with, without training. Blood flow restriction was added to the PT scope of practice in 2019. And, you know, I, I hear anecdotally, at least, right. People use even just like a standard blood pressure cuff sometimes to occlude uh, a limb to exercise. We exclusively at this point are using a specific device made by Delphi, and that comes along with a specific kind of training requirement. And the training group is Owens Recovery uh, Science. And uh, so we, we use that Delphi device. It's technically listed um, as a class one medical device. And so it's, you know, relatively safe and it has that federal approval. What, what's nice about that is, you know, in contrast to maybe like just throwing a blood pressure cuff on someone and hoping for the best is it gives you like a personalized pressure at each time you use it. So, and then it can monitor that and it kind of can equalize that as people are moving, which is, is often difficult to do. And then that way you can really monitor that you're keeping that at a, a safe occlusion pressure. So typically we wouldn't go above 80% of maximal occlusion. And so, so that device tends to work really well with us. There are other devices. There's lots of other devices on the market 
And I'm not exactly sure how all of those other devices, you know, require training or not to, mm -hmm. to use them. It's a little bit like when TENS became commercially available for people to just go buy on whatever, Amazon or at their local store, mm -hmm. that there are, you know, professional grade devices that have a greater capacity for flexibility that is, that is built for clinical use as opposed to something that you buy off of an infomercial that has an on and off switch, you know, so I think you can find BFR devices that are really quite inexpensive, but I think there's the question of accuracy and durability uh, and safety. <laughs> so I think, you know, the idea of, of using, you know, a, a medical grade device in the clinics to me seems a wise choice. Uh, I actually had called earlier today to try to find some pricing info to be able to give you a specific number, but unfortunately, uh, they they did not. They're they're not. They're still working remotely and and didn't didn't answer my voicemail quickly enough. Um, but I mean, you can buy a device online for just several hundred dollars. I think again, in my humble opinion, we should be looking at something that is you know built for patient care and not for personal use to make sure that that we can be safe. How would you bill for it? And how do you suggest selling the benefits of BFR to an employer? I'm not certain that it can be billed separately. It's, it's, I, don't, I don't think it's a, separate, a separately billable item because you're not going to administer it like a passive modality. Mm -hmm. It's an adjunct to therapeutic exercise. So from a, from a billing perspective, it, it, it's probably going to end up being categorized as, as therapeutic exercise or neuro re-education or, or whatever appropriate coding might be might be useful for that. My, my thought about it is it, it facilitates the efficiency and effectiveness of those therapeutic exercise interventions. That, that's its role. So when, when I think about uh, what I might tell my boss about it, its value is in expediting and maximizing recovery. So hopefully it's going to pay off in having improved outcomes and having faster recoveries and better recoveries. And I think from a income perspective, I think part of the value is offering that service. You have that device and can market it to improve, you know, to drive more patients to come to your clinic. I think the payoff is both at, a, at an individual level that hopefully the patient is going to have a better experience, which is going to lead to higher, higher patient satisfaction outcomes and hopefully word of mouth, but also, you know, with the body of literature that is available for people with osteoporosis and for athletes and, and other healthy adults to use it for, for strength training. And now this growing body that can, can be utilized for some other populations, it's another, another tool that, that a, a wise clinic owner can use to, to talk about why their service might be different from what other people have to offer. It seems like it's covering a lot of bases in terms of population. So if you're a clinic that doesn't only see people with neurological issues, it's definitely a big push because we can, it can be used for so many different people. Yeah. It's not, it's not a one trick pony. You know, vestibular rehab is something that is now commonplace, but, but wasn't 15, 20 years ago. And if you decide to buy a pair of Frenzel lenses for your office, there's, you know, you are treating vestibular patients with those Frenzel lenses and there's no generalizability of it. And granted it's a value, it's a valuable tool, but it helps you in a very narrow scope. I think the, the you know, blood flow restriction device 
is the kind of thing that that can really be used across a whole breadth of population. Yeah. And I think we're we're sort of at the point like that the evidence for its breadth is just starting out. And it looks very promising. Again, the evidence is limited, but it's positive and the feasibility elements of it are good. I think that we're going to see that it's going to come come around as something that's going to going to be more widely used. Yeah, that's a great point, Evan. I think you know, to, to that point, it, the evidence is actually quite good for like the musculoskeletal populations and people recovering post-op. It's, it's quite justifiable, I think, for those clinics because they can buy it for that population maybe or, or focus on that. But there also are potential for a lot of other uses and the evidence is, is still definitely emerging, but it certainly seems to be pointing in the same direction that it's feasible and that it's likely going to be beneficial more and more people I think are coming in and asking for it. So this is something that came out a bit in the survey that I mentioned before that we had done. I don't think these results made it into the paper, but there was an appendix of the results where where we have that, that, you know, certainly there's patients that are coming in with neurological conditions, not not necessarily tons at this point, but asking for it. Uh, And certainly patients with, you know, post-op or musculoskeletal injuries, uh, I think are more educated about that. But the final thing I wanted to point out about that, you know, in terms of like, how could I justify this to my boss or whatever, is that, you know, there, there's quite a few people that are already probably using this in neurologic conditions, right? So like in our survey, again, it wasn't tons and tons of people, but out of the hundred plus people that we surveyed, uh, almost 40% of people said they were already using it or uh, had at least used it once uh, with someone with a neurologic condition. So it's definitely, I think, something that's that's growing. Hopefully, uh, the evidence in the literature continues to, to explore those questions and, and supports it even more. Would you say it's better acutely or chronically? And in what settings do you think this intervention is feasible? I certainly think that it's very relevant for outpatient practice. And, and I think that if it is going to be used more, more frequently in, in clinical practice with people with neurologic conditions, that it would certainly start in that setting. Because it's like you said, there's, there's going to be clinics that have it for other reasons and then also start using it for people with neurologic conditions. Uh, you know, I, I certainly haven't used it in any other settings. I don't know, Evan, if you have any thoughts about, about that. There's really no evidence that has looked at it in more acute situations. But in, in terms of practicality, I, I think that anytime that there is a, a goal related to strengthening, it, there, there's potentially the logical application of the intervention. So I think in acute care, uh, assuming that, there, you know, that, that safety is proved, it, we may be seeing a patient for a day or two, it may not be practical to set it up, walk the patient through the process, have them walk through a strengthening protocol. Because, you know, I think as, as a neuro PT clinician, I don't, I don't do a lot of straight plane strengthening exercises. Mm -hmm. I do a lot, a lot more functional retraining Mm -hmm. and the BFR application is in general applied in like an isolated way. It's, it's applied to the, for this muscle group. And then there's a rest period and then we're applying it to another muscle group. So it's a little bit more parsed out. So uh, it, it doesn't feel like a, a logical application in that setting. 
but in a in a rehab hospital or or mm-hmm. subacute rehabilitation center where we're talking now uh, about you know days or weeks maybe even months where maybe there is a place for it in that kind of environment and particularly you know I, I hope with um, the data that that Mark is collecting on on our study that in people with much higher levels of disability we're going to see the value for that patient who is low functioning to the point that they can't participate or reap the benefit from a, from traditional exercise. So I, I, I think that it's an avenue that needs to be explored to apply it in that setting to see, is it feasible? One of the things that came out of the case report that I published, and again, it's a case report, one person, mm-hmm. but the, the strength gains took a long time to come we collected data at six weeks and 12. There was change, there was movement in the right direction at six weeks, but by the time 12 weeks came around, there was actually a marked improvement in enough muscle groups that it was really a more powerful finding. So it's not the kind of thing that's gonna make for a strength change in an hour or a day. It Mm -hmm. it needs to be part of a longer program. So I guess my thought about it is that if the window is very short, that it may not be worth the investment of time and energy when there are other high priority goals to work on. I think mm-hmm. looking at the more discrete deficits in strength is something that's probably going to happen a little bit later. But yeah. that all said, that's a, there's a big question mark there because maybe, maybe it's use acutely is beneficial. And with that evidence I talked about before about helping to actually lessen the severity of an acute stroke, maybe there's this twin benefit of of some kind of physiological improvement centrally coupled with some benefit that carries over. So I I think that really the grand answer is we, we still need to look at it more carefully. One setting I think this could be really useful for is home health. Like if you're going into someone's home and you don't have a lot of equipment and the goal is to, to strengthen, Certainly the devices are portable enough, right? Mm-hmm. That you could bring this into a home and use it given like Evan was saying that you're going to be, you know, this is a more kind of a longer term plan of care. Uh, and I think it could be quite useful then when you, when you have a, maybe a harder time dosing more intensely because you don't have a lot of equipment. Yeah. And that home health population can be a population that has more fatigue issues. So I can imagine it'd be helpful. Who is an ideal candidate for this intervention? Upper extremity versus lower extremity strengthening, proximal versus distal weakness, cognitive deficits, age, who tends to, and what deficits tend to benefit most from this? The way that that BFR is applied, you you tend to put the tourniquet or the cuff on the most proximal part of the limb. And so targeting the extremities is probably the most relevant and where all the evidence is really. There is a little bit of evidence that you could potentially have an effect proximal to the cuff. So I believe like this has been mostly looked at at like the rotator cuff and different types of athletes recovering from injuries. Mm-hmm. You know, that you put the, the cuff below the shoulder, but there could be some benefits. But largely speaking, the best effects, the most dramatic effects will be then distal to the cuff. In terms of age, I don't know that age would really 
play into it except for any serious comorbidities or, or contraindications that, that someone might have. But I do think cognitive deficits comes into play and, and I'd, I'd be very careful. It's a, it's a weird feeling. So your patient wasn't able to really grasp the reasoning and kind of give a consent that they're going to understand what's happening, then I think it would probably be could, could go horribly wrong um, by applying this pressure to them. If I can add something to that, one of the key things, and this was something that, that Mark and I mulled over a lot in planning, planning our study of um, these patients with more advanced MS disability, and that's that there needs to be the voluntary input from the patient in order to make it happen. When I'm thinking about, you know, particularly like, like a patient with something like stroke, they need to have the adequate motor control, the adequate independent voluntary movement to isolate that joint or that muscle or that movement to action. I think someone who only can execute movements in synergy isn't necessarily going to benefit from that because it's not going to have a, an effect on improving control. It's going to have an effect on contractile force and muscle mass. If the deficit is a strength deficit, then I think it, it, that whether it's the arm or the leg or whether it's acute or chronic, whether the person is old or young, I feel like that's, that is fertile ground. But I think for the person who doesn't have that isolated motor control, I have a hard time seeing how that would pay off. Again, it might be worth looking into to see is there some benefit there but knowing that abnormal synergy is something that is centrally driven rather than peripherally, I'm not, I, 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 that, I would not make that choice to try it on that person. So I'm thinking about somebody hip flexion and how people with MS or treatments of people with MS and stroke tend to focus on that. Would you say that it'd be good to put this on somebody, for example, that has a stroke that has no hip flexion range of motion? I think uh, Mark and I both alluded to the evidence that there is a, there's an effect that is more proximal than the location of the tourniquet. So uh, Mark was just explaining that for, for people with a shoulder injury, they put the cuff on the humerus, but there's some carryover to, the, to more proximal than that. And, and I believe that there's some evidence that does the same looking at, at thigh restriction and how that actually pays off in improving hip function. So exercising the hip muscles with the tourniquet on the thigh has a similar effect to exercising the knee muscles with the, with the tourniquet on the thigh. I would say that that is really worth looking into, particularly knowing what a big contributor, a lack of hip flexion strength is to problems with gait and walking. But, but I'm not familiar with that being really specifically looked at in the literature. I think there has been some literature that's looked at the hip when you include obviously below the hip on the thigh, you know, that is actually one question that our feasibility trial and MS might be able to get at a little bit because we are, we're, we're strengthening quadriceps, but we're also strengthening hip abduction. We're not necessarily powered to answer this question directly, but potentially we could get at some answer of it because if the, the gains, we're using the same type of dosing. So if the gains in the, the quad are a lot bigger than the gains and the hip abductors, or, or if they're similar, that might give us some insight into that. But my anecdotal observations so far, having assessed a lot of the outcomes is that 
it's probably not nearly as effective in the hip abductors as, as it has been in the, in the quads. When we were planning the protocol for, for that study, one of the things we talked about is the population of people that we're working with are people who not only have a high level of disability, but because of their MS may have a really heterogeneous presentation. And we thought very carefully about well, what do we do if the person cannot even go through the active range of motion of the desired muscle group. And so we, we also talked about, do we do like an assisted range of motion with the BFR? We built that into our protocol. We have had to do with some people, like more of a manual resistance or like an isometric for at least part of the treatment. I think that's a whole nother question that's interesting because there actually is some evidence and I think this is primarily like post-op when people aren't really able to move as much that putting BFR on passively can have some small effect. I, I don't think that, that it would ever take someone with MS who's like completely hemiparetic on one limb and, and allow them to move again. But yeah, that, that's kind of, I think, what Evan was referring to. We were trying to think about all those scenarios and, and what do you do? Maybe, maybe there can be some sort of effect to someone who needs assist to move. Even if the improvement is incremental, then, you know, it shows us that that's an avenue to pursue. What does the conversation sound like when you do propose this intervention to patients? I think it really, you know, becomes like any conversation we'd have with our patients where, you know, you want their input into their own plan of care and you Mm -hmm. present this as, hey, you know, this is a way that, you know, we could try strengthening you and you can mm-hmm. present some of the evidence from other populations being very clear that it's not proven that it's going to help their strength, but that it is another tool. A lot of another thing that came out in the survey we did was that some clinicians in that survey talked about opting to use BFR with their patients when traditional strengthening didn't work. So yeah. it's kind of like, let's try this. If it doesn't seem to work, let's let's talk about adding BFR. And I think that's probably a really good way to go about it. Because again, if, if I don't have to use BFR, if my patient's tolerating strengthening just fine, there's really strong evidence, at least like an MS, right? That, that I know the literature the best, that this person's going to make strength improvements. Mm-hmm. And so I'm only going to probably introduce this if I think there's some limitation or I note some other limitation. Yeah. And I tend to treat it, uh, the same way that I would treat like using electrical stimulation, which I don't use very often, but my patient might go, what? (laughs) They have no idea what I'm talking about. And so I'll tell them that this is what it is. And this is what it does. This is how I think it will help you or how it might help you. These are the risks of using it. And these are the benefits. And let's talk about it. Let's see if we can, you know, come to an agreement about whether it seems like a good choice or not. As with anything and again, I'll, I'll keep up with the analogy of like an electrical stimulator. It might sound like a good idea until you put it on and the person really loathes the sensation of it. Mm-hmm. And so I think the more you prepare the person for it, it's going to create a tight restriction. It's going to be like having your blood pressure checked for five minutes. It's not going to go away. It's going to feel tight. So let's try it for a little bit and then to wean them up to it. So it doesn't really add very much time 
except for the first time where you're yeah, introducing it and weaning the person onto it mm-hmm. and making sure that they're comfortable not only with the with the tension but now doing the exercises with the with the pressure on as well but what after like like with so many other things after the first time or two and the learning effect disappears then it's the extra few seconds of all right let's get the cuff on particularly if you have the medical grade grade device and you say, okay, I need 70% of the arterial occlusion pressure, the AOP, I push the button and it says 70% and it cranks it up, it does it by itself. And so, I, I th- and, and as long as the patient knows what's to be expected, I think as with anything else, clear communication, making sure that the patient is part of that decision-making process and ensuring their buy-in before you proceed is is going to help you succeed. What do you expect the future to be like in regards to blood flow restriction? Will it be in all clinics? Will it be done at home? I know we kind of touched upon this in terms of different devices that are available in, in the market right now. So I mean, it is a device that is, it's already FDA approved. It's, you can, like I said, you could purchase one on the web mm-hmm. if, you, if you're interested for personal use. And, and athletes and bodybuilders have been doing that for years. So um, th- there's a certain degree of general safety for, mm-hmm. for the device. And I think what my, my take on it is that the evidence really leans towards it being beneficial for people with central nervous system dysfunction, in addition to the populations that we already know, like athletes and older adults with osteoporosis and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think once, once we have a clear idea of any potential safety issues with different neurologic populations. I, I, I do feel like the likelihood of them is pretty low based on, on what we know about the devices. And I do feel like, like once that is more widespread, we're going to see a bit of a floodgate opening about it because it's, it's easy to apply. It's not that expensive. It gives a, an excellent option, an excellent alternative for traditional strengthening exercise for a group of populations that may have a very difficult time doing those exercises, working at at a a high enough intensity for strengthening or for aerobic training. So I think we're going to see quite a lot of it in the next five years or so. Yeah. I mean, to Evan's point, we actually have another study going on at University of Colorado that's looking at BFR after total knee arthroplasty. And part of their protocol is they actually send the device home with the patients. And so they spend some time and teach them how to use it, but then the the participants take it home. And I I don't know how long they use it for, but at least a couple of weeks. And so again, the, the device that we use, the Delphi device is really simple to use. That being said, I believe that that device is not sold direct to consumers. So I think that, you know, has to kind of go through clinical or some other healthcare professional and, and there's a training associated with that device. But but yes, there's lots of different ones available. I also want to mention that it's, you know, it's not just physical therapists that are using this, right? So trainers use this and other medical professionals or, or exercise, I guess, professionals use this quite often. So you know, it's definitely growing in popularity. And so I, I, I just anticipate with that, you're, you're going to see more use in people with neurologic conditions as well. Before we wrap up, is there anything else you guys want to comment on? Recalling back to body weight supported treadmill training 
and how it, you know someone had the idea that oh I, I wonder if this is something that's actually going to work with this population and then there was some feasibility studies and then they recognized safety and all of a sudden it like exploded and and everybody was looking at body weight supported mm -hmm. treadmill training for every population from kids to adults and orthopedic problems to neurologic problems and i feel like we're kind of at that spot right now for bfr i feel like it's been in in use in the clinic enough that people are familiar with it many young pts are like my my students know about it without ever having learned about it in pt school they're they're aware of it and so i think i think there's like this momentum building for it and again, not not that I'm I, I'm going to advocate one way or the other. I, I need to see what the evidence has to say, but the evidence seems to be leaning in that direction. And I feel like there's going to be like a critical mass of safety and feasibility across enough populations that people are going to say, no, I'm going to try it with my guy. I'm going to try it with my group of people. And I think we're going to see it explode. And, and hopefully the evidence pans out to be useful across populations and, and not to have any kind of a negative impact in, in one population or another that it, that it won't be feasible. That's a great point, Evan. And, and I think you can look back historically in physical therapy and you see this happen over and over again, right? With new interventions that catch on and, and become very popular, right? And, and so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm well aware, I guess, that, right, this is kind of the, the latest and greatest in terms of kind of what's new and popular in physical therapy but I also do think, and I, and I think one important take home from all of this, and I, I've said it, I think at least a couple of times already, is that yes, you could use it probably safely in a lot of different populations and different people. And, and like Evan said, we might see it really explode in the next, in the coming years. But I do think it's going to be like a lot of these other tools eventually, you know, as a field or a profession, you, re you realize, well, actually the core of what we do is actually really good this tool can help me improve my outcomes in some specific scenarios and with some specific patients, but it's not going to be a panacea where I'm going to apply it to every person that I see. And so I, I think there's always a bit of caution that we have to, to have when these new kind of tools and, and, and sort of trends come out, even with strong evidence, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always about having more things in your toolbox, but not necessarily using that one thing as your hard and fast rule for every patient. Thanks again, Dr. Manyaga and Dr. Cohen for speaking to us and thanks everyone for tuning into this podcast. Please continue to look out for more of the Stroke Special Interest Group podcast on ANPT Synapse, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.